You're listening to Toronto's number one real estate podcast, powered by Watson Estates. The most successful local real estate investing starts right here, right now. Here's your host, broker, investor, and social media influencer, Bradley Watson. Hey investors, Bradley here from Watson Estates, and you're listening to the largest, fastest growing podcast for Toronto real estate on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Now you're probably here because you love keeping up to date on the latest news, what's going on in the local Toronto real estate market. But I think it's important we take time to talk to investors, people that are ultra successful at what they do. And today we have the infamous Andrew Hines on the show. He is the host of the Andrew Hines Show podcast and um, a great guy. And today we have covered great topics as well. I'm not all that familiar in the rental space. So I was able to have a conversation with him about what does that look like? Where are there opportunities if I'm considering maybe that avenue, but we don't stop there. No, because we start talking about economics. We start talking about where, what should I be doing and considering with my portfolio in order to be successful in the next few years here in Canadian real estate. I know you guys are going to get a lot of value out of the show. Please hit that like button, leave a comment down below and support the channel. And if you haven't already, take some time to jump over to the Andrew Hines podcast as well. Enjoy the show. Andrew, thanks for joining us on the show today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I am thrilled to have you on the show. No doubt anyone who follows our channel has heard or is familiar with your episodes as well, specifically if they're in the investing side. Maybe for those who are maybe unfamiliar with your face or you know, trying to get a feel for what you do as we kind of set the tone for today, tell us a little bit about um, where you come from. Okay, so I'm a real estate investor. I started uh, primarily investing in student rentals, uh, bought my first property back in 2011 and um, started building up a student rental portfolio by using the Burr method. So that was that's where you buy, renovate, rent, refinance, and then repeat. Um, I you know, really, really stand behind that method. I think it's the best way for Canadians. Well, traditionally in the last five years has been the best way for Canadians to create wealth. And uh, I'm heavily focused on cash flow. Along the way, because I was doing big renovations and building additions, I got asked to start building some new construction for, uh, for someone. I started my own construction company. I've built... Uh, I guess we're, we're nearing on 50 plus uh, units between uh, townhouses and, and houses, um, as well as doing my own renovations and, and addition builds on my properties. So um, that's the, the short version. Of course, we can do a longer version, but uh, kind of had my hand in, in multiple different parts of the process. Yeah, I, I think if, if we're going to dive in uh, to kind of set the tone, maybe tell us a little bit about what housing types you do. Um, what markets you're in, where are these, these units located that you've, uh, that you've had in under your belt? Right. So all my investment portfolio right now is in London, Ontario. Um, outside of that, the only other places I've invested, um, you know, minus doing a couple of like wholesales or bird dogs or stuff, stuff like that has been in Ohio, uh, which is another entirely different conversation. Um, you know, went down there for the cash flow, came back, uh, regretting it. Uh, not that, <laughs> not that you can't, uh, win doing that kind of thing, but, um, I, I learned my twenties were, were really just nothing but hard knocks, um, trying things, getting burned, uh, getting hurt and recovering and cleaning up the mess. And uh, I learned a lot by going through that. They say you learn from mistakes or mentors. I, I learned mostly from mistakes. And then, of course, I did have some really good mentors. So kind of combining all of that. Um, so the type of units I'm in, uh, in London, primarily single family homes, um, renting out houses to groups of students. So there might be five students all on one lease. 
And um, one of them is actually a duplex, but yeah, generally speaking, the students really value having houses. I, I like going after that market, the ones that want to have a house, they want to have a backyard. Um, and I specifically go after the higher end, um, you know, demographic, the ones that can afford to spend more and are willing to spend more for a premium product. So I create a very premium product when I buy a property. So part of my process would be to buy it, renovate it. Typically, I try and create ensuite bathrooms in every bedroom if I can. And um, by doing that, I'm able to, to charge quite the premium in rent. And it's also a lot easier to rent and fill vacant rooms. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. So, so let's go down the, the rental. I, I want to come back eventually and talk about some of the people that have influenced you uh, in your career as well in, in investing. But while we're here, let's talk a little bit about student rentals. So I haven't touched student rentals with a pole. And there's a lot of people that are very reluctant. Um, what are some of, if we were to outline them, what are some of the downside risks, I guess, that you've experienced that you seem to see are scaring people off? And then what are the reasons that you say, despite those, it's still worth it for me as an investor to, to dive into that arena? Um, the downsides are, it's, it's more of a business. You, you really do need to understand your school. You need to understand the rental cycle at your school. And if you miss critical dates, you put yourself at a significant disadvantage to get re-rentals. And then you'll have landlords who don't have their property rented out by say March or you know into April and May 1 is when their, their unit becomes available again. Um, you might have rent landlords that are, that are having students email them and say, Hey, you know what, uh, will you do an eight month lease and something like that? So what am I going to just carry the property for, for four months over the summer? Um, that's the probably the biggest fear in a landlord's head. Um, I do 12 month leases starting May 1st, my rental season when I'm trying to to get people to agree to rent uh, is, you know, way back in in say October, November of the previous year. So I'm renting them out for the May 1st coming back in October or November. And uh, that, that allows me to sort of mitigate that, that challenge. Um, but I want to have that superior product so that when all the other landlords are kind of being looked over, I'll, I'll make sure that I do get a, a good look, a fair look. Um, and I'll also look for superior locations. Um, I think that that's really important. It's not to say that you can't, can't do well with fringe locations or, or locations that are kind of pushing the boundaries of where you would ideally want to be. Um, so in terms of uh, other negatives, um, people are worried about uh, students causing damage um, that generally speaking has never been that severe. If you have good handy people and part of your operation, there's no, no issue. Um, I think it really all comes back to systems. You've got to have systems and people. You can't just buy one and expect to be good at running a, a student rental. Um, you need to have a mentor. You need to have people showing you uh, or, or talking to other investors that are doing it saying, what are your processes? What, when do you do this? When do you do that? And uh, I noticed you didn't ask me, but I'll just go ahead and say it. The benefit is cash flow. Um, you know, I, I see significantly more cash flow in student rentals versus buying the exact same house price, um, you know, for, for a single family. Right. So uh, that's the big difference. It's been, you know, in my portfolio, you know, 600 bucks a month for an, an average property is, is a good, you know, a decent cash flow. Um, I've got, you know, up to, you know, maybe a thousand bucks, $1,200 a month uh, on, on other properties. Um, those are incredible cash flows uh, compared to uh, what a lot of people can do in single family. And then of course, we're talking Toronto here, this Toronto podcast, that's not very common. So um, it really is a business and it's not for the faint of heart, but if you go in understanding that and being willing to do the work, I, I think it can pay dividends in the future uh, greatly. 
Do you find any extra challenges? So from what I've heard through the grapevine is it sounds like it could be more difficult. And now, now I'm more in the apartment side, but on the financing, right? Like mm -hmm. do, do they give you a harder time with these lease agreements or because you're in the single family, maybe you're avoiding that or things like insurance. Like do, do you find that you're kind of, you know, taken for a ride sometimes on these programs to try and get things running? Maybe your maintenance budget. Like I'm curious if that's higher um, in order to make these things work. Good questions. Okay, so financing, let's just take it one by one and remind me if I miss one. Um, so financing a single family is the way I finance the ones I have. However, you can finance them commercially under a, a charter a bank, a schedule a bank, um, like BMO, TD, uh, on their commercial lending side. On their residential lending side, their policy is pretty much going to be a firm, no, we do not do student rentals. Um, so early on, I think most most investors are going to sneak it through on the residential side. Um, and, and the key way that I've been able to do that is is you, you make it a normal house. Yeah, sure, I might have extra ensuite bathrooms and stuff, but it's still functions as a normal house. Um, the appraiser comes in, looks at it as that, um, you know, the things you can do to kind of avoid trouble is make sure that you have an appraiser coming in that actually knows what they're doing and understands, you know, how to make it appear to the bank that it's okay. That's been my process, really controlling the process, controlling who comes in, um, making sure that they understand the asset, making sure that they understand the value uh, and say the right things in that report that aren't going to get the bank's, you know, antennas up to, to potentially have an issue with it. And of course you will see deals that go south when the bank didn't know it was a student rental and they, um, and then they all of a sudden find out and they, they canceled the deal. I've seen that coming from the mortgage broker world. I actually, uh, I'm still licensed as a mortgage agent. Um, so I've, I, I don't do that anymore, but I, I definitely uh, have seen that. So, um, that that's the, that's certainly a challenge with financing, but it is still very doable. I've seen a lot of them getting done with CIBC. Um, I've worked with a few different contacts. They've basically financed all of my, my student rentals. Um, and I'm very open with the person I work with about what the asset is and he knows how to position it so that it gets approved. Do you um, see, before we move on to the next one, do you see limits on that? Like given yes. that you're working with a lenders, do you think there's going to be a cap mm -hmm. on there? There is, there always is. Um, so CIBC, it's five units with them or five yeah. houses with them. I'm, I'm maxed with them. But um, they're, they're, you know, the next step is is to go to commercial lending yeah. or you work with credit unions. So the other one that I didn't didn't get into is, is you can work with local credit unions. Um, they're a lot more open to it, full disclosure. Uh, they might cut back your loan to value. They might, they might take you to 75%. But um, I believe Libro, and I'm not... Don't mean to name drop too much here, but I believe my friend uh, who's who's done quite a few uh, more than I have uh, is done is doing everything with Libro now in, in London, and uh, they're going to seventy five percent for him. The only difficulty is they're not giving him the thirty year amortization; they're they're keeping him at twenty five. So it does restrict your cash flow a little bit as you yeah. grow. But as you grow, you naturally get better at finding better deals, finding better value, learning how to maximize cash flow. So um, what I've really seen for him is you know he's sort of had uncapped growth. And uh, I, I still believe it's very possible, for, but for the average person, you know, getting a handful of student rentals is going to be, you know, pretty impactful in changing their, their financial destiny. No doubt. No doubt. Okay. So let's jump on the insurance side. Have you seen any challenges with getting insurance there or anything they're looking for a little more closely? Generally speaking, not a challenge. You just need to know who to talk to. If you go to your regular insurer, whoever you're working with, like I used to work with uh, TD Malash Monitz because I was an alumni of Western. I am an alumni of Western and uh, they had a program. It was great. And I said, student rental to them. And they're like, yeah, we don't do that. Um, and you keep asking around and you keep hearing, well, no, we don't do that. But as soon as you work with a broker that understands that business and we're in deals in commercial insurance, all of a sudden things get a lot easier. 
And uh, so, so I would really, really stress that if you're going to go into this game, make sure that you network with fellow investors and you understand what, uh, you know, who they're working with. That's, that's, you know, 90% of the battle is just making sure that you're talking to the right person in that game. Right. Right. Okay. I, I remember there was one more thing I forgot to ask you, but it'll come back to me. It'll come back to me. So the last, yeah, it was the the, last point, I forget now. The, the, the risks. And then we talked about that insurance, mortgage insurance. And then, yeah, you're right. There was one more. And there I'm... was one more. I'll, I'll remember it in a minute. That's okay. Yeah. Okay. So and why, why you got me on another trail is as you're talking about interacting with people, you're really good at this. You're a master at networking. It's key. Anybody who's deep in investing will tell you that. What, who, first off, who are some people who have kind of encouraged you to go from maybe some riskier investments or ones that you look back and like, I shouldn't have done that to where mm -hmm. you are today and having such a successful portfolio and how has networking really opened doors for you? Um, we've heard a few ways here, but maybe in some other ways. Yeah. So I, I guess I should just clarify the question here. So you're, you're looking to know right back to the beginning who, who said, Hey, go do this. And then I got burned. <laughs> yeah. Then, or, or maybe it's yeah. concepts, right. Or, or books, yeah. like something that yeah. I guess some for places for people to look and, and, and see what you saw. That's a great question. I, you know what, the initial inspiration to want to invest in, in real estate came from being a student at Western and seeing my friends pay $500 a bedroom. I'm like, wait a minute we're giving all this money to this landlord. And um, I was, you know, crunching rough numbers and figuring how impactful that would have been if my parents had owned a couple of these buildings that my friends were living in. I'm like, well, that would have, that would have changed their lives. They never would have needed to work again. So that was the inspiration. And I probably should have done a lot more education at the time and, and done a lot more reading and, and networking. I didn't. And I think that's why I made so many mistakes upfront. And, um, you know, I tried development in uh, 2012, 2013, um, you know, taking a property, knocking it down and, and building it into a duplex failed miserably, didn't end up happening, you know, made the front page of the London free press as you know, big, bad <laughs> Toronto developer, even though I was living around the corner. Um, but uh, that's kind of the way the news works these days, different topic. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I kind of went through that stuff. But my mother in law, um, now she was, you know, just my girlfriend's mom at the time. She was a very incredible real estate investor developer. Um, you know, no fear. She wouldn't necessarily explain to me how to do things, but I would just see her attitude about things and, and how she would proceed. And, and she was okay. If not, everything worked out perfectly. Didn't, didn't require perfection because she knew, you know, in the long run, she always wins. And um, I've seen that from her. So I was really inspired by her. Uh, as I'd mentioned before, my friend Carlo uh, also investing in student rentals knew him since, you know, we graduated from the same school we met in 2010 and I was just watching him along. So we would, you know, we would invest in various different types of properties, um, you know, parallel to each other. And uh, he really got into these student rentals doing the Burr projects. So I, you know, I jumped in and I kind of focused more on construction. So I, I was able to really just start mirroring, you know, successful people and what I saw them doing and, you know, kind of occasionally asking them questions, but then making sure that I gave them back value. And, you know, because I'm, I'm a generally a very curious person. So I like to learn about things. So on the construction side, I made it my business to know everything about it, to know, uh, to know how to do it, how to get the permits, how to, how to get the inspections passed, how to do all these things. And because I dove right into building additions on my properties, my friend Carlo and I could share stuff all the time because he didn't like doing that. So I helped him with that. And, um, you know, just along the way, like, you know, it's, it's kind of a mixture of networking. Yes. But trying to add value to people who, you know, who I regularly want to speak with. And, um, you know, if you're enjoying yourself, if you're in a business you, you enjoy and you, you find it an interesting, that, that becomes very easy. Um, you mentioned that I am pretty well networked. I'm mainly well networked now uh, because of the podcast that I started. And um, it was one of the big reasons is I wanted to become a central hub for real estate investing in Canada. And, um, you know, I've still got lots of work to do on that. But 
Um, I, I just feel that, you know, by going out there and by being the central hub of information, good things will come. And it's not that I've monetized the podcast and never have. Uh, it's really just a matter of who can I pull out my phone and text today and get a response from. And um, I'm, I'm honored to know the people that I know and, and, and be able to speak with them, share ideas with them. And I know in the long run, um, you know, it's, it's like, you know, how Donald Trump went, went bankrupt and then was able to rebuild it. Like people, people who have uh, a wealth of knowledge uh, can, can rebuild even if they lose. And uh, I, I just see that value in, in all the connections I have. And then all I've learned from those connections. Long-winded, I know. You said some Sorry. good stuff there. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Like, I love the curiosity. I mean, when we look at millionaires, curiosity, asking questions is so good. The networking stuff, so good, all of it. And even with COVID, it's been very difficult to network, go to groups and, and meetups and stuff. And so the podcast has been an opportunity to meet new faces. I know I've been able to leverage your channel personally to find contacts in arenas that I don't know. So it definitely has become a hub. And I encourage anybody who's listening to our show that doesn't uh, frequently tune into the Andrew Hines show, please do, um, if, especially if you want to get into real estate investing. I remember what we were going to talk about. We're going to talk about <laughs> maintenance. I'm yes. curious what right. you budget for your maintenance each year. Well, okay, so I have, this is this is more of a philosophical question, because a lot of people will say, well, you budgeted that, but you'll never spend that in a single year. And it's all about for what purpose, right? If I'm trying to, if I'm trying to apply to a lender, I would use a different number than what I would use as my evaluation when I'm buying something. Yeah. But I like to consider life cycle maintenance and, um, you know, annual wear and tear. Like if I had to repaint a house, I could spend $3,000, um, you know, odds and ends, furnace going down. The thing I like to do is I'd say in the average year, I might only spend $3,000 on one house uh, or 2000 or maybe only 1500 but probably more like 2000 But what about that year that I got to replace the furnace? What about that year that I got to spend 10000 to replace the, the roof? So I like to budget anywhere from 5 to 8%, uh, maybe even 10%. If I bought an old unrenovated property, I'd probably be budgeting 10% per year on my rents. Um, so that I know that I'm safe. And if I could still cash flow in that, that scenario, I know that even when the surprises come up, I'm still going to be fine. I'm going to be able to sleep at night. And the biggest thing I learned in my 20s from many restless nights and not being able to sleep is I couldn't sleep because of the decisions I made. I put myself into precarious positions uh, where I didn't have enough cash on hand to cover the unknowns, the things that come up. So um, the way I've been able to hedge against that is, is um, I basically make sure that I carry a reserve in a different bank account for every single property I own. And uh, that for me has worked. Everybody's going to be different. But, um, you know, I like to let those, those accounts get north of $15,000 uh, just in case. And when I have that there now, I can sleep. Now, there's a different issue, you know, knowing the inflation that we've got coming with all the government spending that's been happening, which kind of frustrates me to have that money there uh, because I know it's inefficient. It's more, it, it's one of those things that I objectively know is inefficient, but we all have to do what, what allows us to, to sleep at night. And that's kind of what's worked for me. I love the way your mind works, man. That's cool. Very cool. Yeah, I'm, you got to know really, yourself in this business, eh? Like you really do. That's one of the yeah. things I've learned as I come into my 30s. It's about knowing yourself, know, understanding how you are and your, how your emotions work. Yeah. Have you, on the note, I guess, before we move on, I was going to, I want to ask you a little bit more about the Burr and, and how that's been able to really boost things for you. But I'm curious, as we're on the rental side here, I know I've seen a lot of articles coming out of college towns, university towns that have been struggling with housing for students. Mm -hmm. Have you, have you found there's been much of a hiccup as we've rounded through that month of May? And, you know, as you've been picking up these tenants, has it changed anything for you? Have you had any vacancies, maybe more than the normal housing type or not really? No, no vacancies yet. Um, I do see, I do see potential cause for concern with what's coming. Um, mainly because, you know, one, one September 1st rolls by and you don't go to school, you say, okay, well, next year we'll be back. Um, 
you know, that doesn't really change much. The students I speak with, they're like, well, you know, what are we going to do? Live at home with our parents? No, we're coming to town. So everybody came back, even though they didn't have in, in class uh, sessions, they, they were doing online, but they still wanted to be back in town. Um, you know, and generally, I think that that's going to continue. But it's the question of, you know, if we come around to next September, and we're still not uh, in class, uh, you know, what's going to happen. And, and as people who haven't signed yet, you're always going to have those tentative people who wait till the last minute to sign a lease. I was one of them when I was a student. Um, so you're going to have those people that uh, are just going to sit and wait this out. And I have heard a bit of that, but I still see plenty of demand. People still want to sign up their leases for, for May 1st, uh, you know, anticipating class will be back in session in person as of September 1 uh, this coming year. So um, I haven't seen too much of a change yet. Everything's been, been uh, fine and dandy, quite frankly, uh, as far as my portfolio goes. Um, but I, I'm always thinking, you know, curiously about the future, what could come, what could the implications be of the decisions that are being made now? Um, and I like to hedge myself. So um, I, I, I have sold uh, one of my properties, I, I am still planning on keeping the ones that I consider, you know, for me to be the ones that are most ideal for my management style for the way I like to, to run my properties. Um, but uh, I'm going to be diversifying a little bit, because I was pretty heavy into the, the student rental position. Um, however, I, I still think it's a fantastic opportunity. I just think that you have to you have to plan for the worst. So if you're going to be in student rentals, make sure that you're invested in a property that could also serve single families, uh, because you never know what could happen. If we have another year of no class, you may want to switch tenants. Um, and I would be for me for me to make that decision, I would have to be able to justify that I could cash flow or at least break even in both scenarios. And when I say break even, I mean, I've factored maintenance, I've factored management, anything I'm actually going to pay. So I guess the question is where are you headed? <laughs> well, I've got a couple of opportunities. So it really depends on how, how things unfold over the next few months. Um, you know, I've got a couple of avenues. I may be, may be doing some investing uh, south of the border. And then of course, um, I, I really like cottage country. I like the Owen Sound Wyerton area. Um, so I'm, I'm basically getting liquid right now so that I have the ability to, to buy and build. And uh, whether it be by here or by there, uh, as as the situation unfolds around the lockdown here and what we can and can't do, that'll that'll sway my decisions. Interesting. Very cool. Okay, so so there's there's power in having a thousand dollars a month coming in in cash flow. It gives you a little bit of mm -hmm. a, a bit of flexibility, but it doesn't it doesn't change your life. I guess you could say. No. I'm reading the Ultimate uh, Wealth Builder. I think is the name of the book right now. Um, and it's it's interesting because the Burr strategy allows you to have that money available to deploy again and it allows you to recycle it and you mentioned at the beginning of the show burr is so powerful i think it's important maybe once once you're analyzing a property i know you're you're good at sharing your your analysis with with listeners what are some of the things that you look at like what are some of the deals you've had maybe you've walked into into these rentals the student rentals to allow for that forced appreciation and are you able to get the full amount back are you able to come out with extra do you sometimes have to because you mentioned you do uh, additions like are you having to get yeah. extra creative in order to do it I'm, I'm curious what that kind of looks like for you yeah I, great question and and it's not like if people are listening and they're just assuming they can go in and they can they can see properties at surface value and find a deal that's going to work right away to get like the perfect burr where you pull all your money back out um, that's not likely it's not to say it's impossible but it's gotten harder in london specifically um, i know you know other markets like windsor um, it's still very very possible there um, but there are implications to choosing one town over another and, and, you know, how well hedged you are if students don't come back and all that stuff. So as far as the burr goes, um, when I was, you know, doing a lot of these, these burr projects, I even sold a few because it was just so advantageous at the time I, you know, started a company, flipped a few of them. Um, 
basically I was buying stuff around like 200 grand to 10 and putting around 200 grand in to renovate the inside, build an addition, you know, make it really nice. And then I was getting valuations from appraisers that understood what out of town investors would pay. So I, there were these, these investors that were coming from the Toronto area who saw the cash flow that people were getting in London and paying a lot. Uh, however, a lot of these transactions were not happening on the market. They were happening off market, you know, realtor to realtor, but it was never listed. So I did my research. I saw these houses changing hands because I was driving around in the neighborhood. I found out who was buying them. And I, I basically came up with an angle that not everybody knew about. And I'm like, okay, well, in order to do this, I got to do what this other guy's doing. And he's building additions. So I got to build additions. So I started following and basically copying this guy, um, not knowing everything, but knowing enough to feel confident. And, um, you know, long and short is I did, I did a, you know, a handful of properties where I was actually able to pull every last dollar out. So, you know, acquire, you know, a million plus in real estate with no money in. Um, and, and that was really by understanding the value that people are willing to pay. Like, what are people willing to pay? What price range uh, for what cash flow? So I had to understand the back end from an investor's standpoint. What are they looking for in a final product? And then I worked backwards from that to figure out what I could afford to pay. And because in not, and it wasn't that I was looking to sell necessarily. It was just, I need to understand because that's what a, an appraiser uses as a comparable, you know, what is somebody willing to pay for this? So um, that was, that was what I was able to do. And, you know, that was, once that happened, I was like, okay, well, this is like printing money. So I'm going to do as much of this as I can. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was a lot of work. Don't get me wrong. Like it's a lot of work managing it. Cause I started managing these, these rentals myself. I did, I did everything, uh, not didn't work, but I, I hired the people, started my own company and all that. Um, so I just pushed and pushed and pushed until London's values basically doubled on the type of inventory that I was buying. So it went from being able to buy, you know, a junker at, at 200 to 210. to now that same junker is like 450. And, yep. uh, you know, that's a pretty substantial difference. And the, the change for me was now all of a sudden I'm having to sell these properties at a much higher price point. That's actually out of the reach of a lot of people. Um, not completely. They're still, they're still saleable, but, uh, it just didn't feel quite as, comforting to go after that. Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm a little bit more of a conservative investor after all the mistakes I've made in the past. So I just, uh, I slowed down on that a bit. Um, I've, I've dabbled in some other things, including, you know, doing additions and secondary units and stuff like that. But uh, this is why I'm examining other markets now, because to me, the London market is, is um, it's not the opportunity it used to be. It's not to say that there aren't still opportunities there. There are opportunities everywhere. You, within 500 meters of your house, there's an opportunity to make probably a million dollars. You just need to know how. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to hit you with a bomb here. Okay. I'm, I know you're in sure. the economics. You love business. What happens in this market mm -hmm. next? I think people can see a little bit with what you said mm -hmm. you're planning on doing next, but I'm curious yeah. where should be, people be selling, should be buying. You're, you obviously don't like holding cash, but like, what's the, yeah. what's next? <laughs> yeah. C cash is trash. Uh, really. I mean, you need it. It's, it's a necessary evil. Um, hard assets are the key hard assets with real value, uh, real value. And, and that goes down to absolutely anything that's going to have future value. So whether at, that's uh, food stores, real estate, gold and silver, um, things that people are going to value, um, say things got bad, say we hit like hyperinflation, what would people need? People are always going to need housing. They're going to look for a stable form of money, which won't be currency, uh, won't be the Canadian dollar. Um, so, you know, things like buying a little bit of gold and silver to, to have that on hand, uh, you know, coin collecting, that kind of thing. You just never know. Um, 
I, I look at the economy and I, I just see that what we've done is entirely irresponsible and unbalanced as a decision to shut down things the way that they have and engage in government spending the way that they have. I think they're really relying on the ignorance of the Canadian people to get away with these decisions. Um, if they understood what I understood, they'd be very panicked. And, um, and I'm not trying to be alarmist here. I think that we just need to you know step back here and prepare ourselves. Yeah. So I'm all about diversifying right now. I think getting money on both sides of the border would be a good idea. Um, I think that, uh, you know, just making sure that you've got things that will hold their value if our currency absolutely tanks. And this is why I love real estate. The challenge will be, you're going to have to hold cash reserves for all your real estate and that cash is going to be devalued. So you have to think, how will I be able to, if we face severe inflation, preserve the value of my existing wealth? And, uh, and make sure that that doesn't get diminished. So um, a delicate balance is needed is, is probably the oversimplified answer. And I know that might not be what you're looking for, uh, but feel free to kind of poke on that more and, and we'll, we'll go down the rabbit hole here. here. Here's a poke for you. So do you think that given all the irresponsible spending and that the government just kind of shrugs off the fact that interest rates are low, do you think, where, where how are we going to pay for it, if at all? Like, is this going to come from the investor's pocket? Because obviously everyone's a lot more happy with taxing the rich, quote unquote rich, yeah. right? So I think we all know that, that doesn't happen though, in, right? <laughs> yeah. So like what, what's yeah. the next move, right? What's the next government yeah. move? I, I don't think the government has a, a plan to repay the debt. I think that um, basically they're, maybe they're planning on inflating it away. Like, like sort of was the approach in Weimar Germany after world war one. Um, but uh, it, it doesn't really seem like they have a plan. Anytime they're questioned on it, they, they dodge the question, say interest rates are cheap, but um there's, there's a couple of things that you really need to consider here. Um, there's two ways to be taxed. There's the direct tax, which the government takes from you in the form of income tax, sales tax, any other tax that you pay directly. You get a bill, you pay it. And then there's the indirect tax, the sneaky tax that people don't understand, which is inflation. And that's the, that's the, the, the tax on your buying power. So if somebody, if you ask for a beer at the bar and they dumped a cup of water into the beer and hand it to you, you say, what the heck is this? I want to ask for a beer. You give me a half beer, half water. Uh, it'd be really, really odd. And you wouldn't tolerate that. But people tolerate that with their money because they don't understand how the system works. Um, so central banking has allowed for this. And um, I'll explain this concept and, and try and keep it as simple as possible. Um, we had roughly a $1 trillion economy last year. And that means that $1 trillion was bought and sold in the economy, including all houses, gasoline, taxes, or sorry, not taxes, but you know everything the economy is basically uh, using, food, whatever. What happens when you add... $500 billion in deficit spending, so money that shouldn't be there. What we have is we have a fractional reserve system with our banks, and that means that the banks don't need to keep all the money on hand. So if you deposit $100 with a bank, the bank can turn around and actually lend out $90 of your money without telling you. And that money goes back out into the economy, and then that circulates back to the bank, and then they can lend it out again, you know, $81, and it goes down and down. So in, in, in theory, um, $100 could actually turn into $1,000 uh, through what they call fractional reserve lending, and then the velocity of money. And that's how fast the money uh, transacts in the economy. So if we say hypothetically that that $500 billion over the next several years is going to turn into $5 trillion, what happens when you have $5 trillion trying to buy what $1 trillion used to buy? Do prices go up five times? Does that happen overnight? Does that take several years to happen? What happens if they keep spending at this rate, keep borrowing at this rate? At what point will our dollar just absolutely collapse? And uh, that's the part that 
scares the heck out of me is the velocity at which they're doing this, the speed at which they're borrowing this money and injecting it into our economy, and then what the implications will be. If people save the money up, we won't feel the effects right away. If they if they start spending it right away, we could see astronomical inflation. We could we could get into the territory of hyperinflation. Although I don't think it'll get that bad right away. Um, so. What do I see them doing? I know we've <laughs> taken a while to get to this. Um, I, I see them to con continue to do what they've been doing so far, which is ignoring the problem and pretending it doesn't exist. So it's up to us to, <laughs> to just not believe what they say, because what they say is going to get us in a lot of trouble uh, and protect ourselves. So we really, I think we're really coming up to a time where we need to be able to provide for ourselves wholly. And I, I, I hate kind of talking like this because I know some people that'd be like, ah, oh, wow, that sounds really extreme. But I, I think that it'd be very responsible to have a 30 day food store uh, saved up, have, have alternative forms of currency, um, prepare yourself. I, you know, I wish that I lived in the country, I would have massive gardens, I'd build a greenhouse, like all that <laughs> stuff. Like that to me, I'm just thinking like, man, I don't trust these people with what they're doing. Like I really don't. And um, so I, I don't know what they're going to do. And that's the problem. None of us do. I, I can only go on what I've seen. And, and I just see a, an extreme level of ignorance. And, uh, and it's like they, they're acting like the Canadian people are very dumb, which I don't like. Um, I, I think that we're smarter than this. And a lot of people are just kind of afraid to say what they're thinking because they don't want to be, you know, said to be insensitive or, you know, you just want people to die. No, you know, I think people will suffer either way. Um, so we, we really need to be balanced here. Sorry, I know that was long winded. No, this is good. So let's bring it down to the individual then, right? So, mm -hmm. so clearly fixed assets, hard assets are going to be what mm -hmm. I agree with you. I think that that's the place to be, which, mm -hmm. which includes real estate. Now, Absolutely. given that, um, do we want, because let's say the value of the dollar is deplete, depleting, right? Through inflation. Now, does that call us to want to have a larger mortgage and therefore less money in the property? Or is the risk so high that we need to make sure there's enough money in the property so that if things go sideways, then do you understand what I'm saying? I know. It's Absolutely. Kind of yeah. There's, there's this balance, right? How much do Funny, I put we in? think about the same things. <laughs> What's that? We think about the same things. I'm constantly well, dissecting the these question things because in my this mind. Is apply, this is something we can apply, right? Yeah. Um, I, I like to, to go through this scenario, what might happen, right? I, I think that uh, Canadians have a threshold of what they can pay. And, and when you see, like, say a town like Hamilton, you know, now when you're paying 600 grand for a bungalow, how long until the average Canadian really just can't qualify for a mortgage on that? Now, granted, the dropping of interest rates has just pushed the prices up a little bit more. But say once they hit 700 grand, probably the average Canadian family can't afford that anymore. So what do they do? They spread. Um, so there's going to come a point where, where houses can't go up in value too much more at, at the pace they've been going up. That's not to say that they won't continue, but just people won't be able to afford them because when inflation hits, it doesn't mean our wages are going to go up. It's just going to make people poor. So I think that the thing we've got to consider is every property individually. What would happen if things got a lot more expensive? You know, how much more can this property's value go up? If the answer is not much, then you're going to want to you're going to want to have some serious serious equity in that property, um, and then a look at your cash flow. To me. You mentioned before, cash flow isn't going to be the life-changing thing, and I agree. It's the appreciation over time. It's the mortgage pay down over time. Sure, the cash flow is nice, but cash flow buys you time. If you have cash flow, you can stay in that property longer. What's your buffer on cash flow? If you're break-even now, what happens if rents fall? What happens, you know, God forbid, like if you're in the higher price category, if you're, if you're, you know, Toronto condo investor downtown, like my wife had a condo, we just sold it, uh, but she was getting at one point $4,000 a month furnished rental and most recent rent, uh, you know, so we were starting to get offers around like 2,800, 2,900. Wow. So that's over a thousand dollar drop. Wow. Uh, that would have been heavy in the red. So we made the decision. We're going to sell this. 
fortunately, you know, got out at the right time, you know, lots of upside there, but, um, you have to look at your asset type. If you're in basic, basic housing that serves the lower class, the middle class, that type of housing is going to be very resilient in this type of a downturn. Uh, but if you're in very premium real estate, now all of a sudden you're going to have to make some decisions because are you hedged if the worst happens? Like what if people don't need to be downtown Toronto, which they presently don't need to be? What's the demand for your real estate? This is why I never I never really liked personally um, investing downtown Toronto just because for my cash flow needs, for my feeling comfortable and sleeping at night, I didn't see it being overly feasible. Um, so I, I would really just encourage people to, to consider your asset class. If you're invested in Toronto, you're going to want to have a bit more equity there in case there is a bit of a downturn. I don't consider the value of the property to be the thing that matters most. It is the cash flow. Because if my value drops below my mortgage, I don't care as long as I'm still cash positive because I know in the long run, that company will require uh, will will improve and will appreciate, especially with the inflation that's coming. Until they call your mortgage. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Can they call it because you're underwater? You'd have to be in default if you're yeah, not in default. I guess so. I guess. Yeah. So. so as long as you're servicing your debt, um, that's the, you got, that's you the can, question. You can carry it. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So if you're, Fair if enough. you're like $3,000 a month in cash flow, but your property's worth $50,000 less than you owe on it. I mean, do you really care? You can ride that out. I mean, yeah, you don't want that, but you you're still that, positioned right? to be able to handle it. And I think that that's the key differentiation there. If you're looking for a, a very specific one, one size fits all kind of answer, it's hard for me to get that. Absolutely. Andrew, this has been a time well spent. I've learned a ton and I'm sure our audience has too. Tell us a little bit more about where people can find you if they want to learn more about the Andrew Hines that we've been able to talk to today. Uh, so the easiest uh, place, if you you know want to kind of follow me and see my stories and what have you, would be Instagram. Um, so at the Andrew Hines. And then uh, if you want to follow the podcast, it's the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. If you just search my name on any of the platforms, you'll find me. Beautiful. Thanks again. And please, folks, uh, if you can, please like. If you want to leave a comment for Andrew down below, please do so. And um, we want to know what you guys thought of the show today, what you learned. And uh, yeah, make sure you subscribe. We'll see you next time. Thanks again, Andrew, for your time. Thanks for having me.